Well, good morning. It is good to see you. Happy Sunday before Thanksgiving. Um, it's just a week that interrupts my Christmas festivities, as uh, Casey, our former staff member, uh, let you know. Um, I miss having him around. Uh, if, you, if you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we're going to be together this morning. If uh, you're new with us, if this is your first time, or if we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Ethan. I get the great joy of serving as the pastor here at Central, uh, and uh, I want you to know I'm glad that you're here uh, and that you've chosen to, uh, to worship with us this morning. Um, like we all know, it is the Sunday uh, before Thanksgiving. Uh, I was reminded of this, that Thanksgiving is coming on Friday. Uh, me and my wife decided that uh, we needed to go to Sam's, and we, we pulled in the parking lot, and I, uh, I thought, don't these people have jobs, right? Where, where, where are all these people coming from? And then I was reminded uh, that, oh, it's, uh, it's the week before Thanksgiving. Um, and I was there to get dog food. They were there to get turkeys. Um, uh, but I've learned over the last couple of years, last several years, uh, that not everyone eats turkey on Thanksgiving. Um, uh, I've learned that ham apparently is a, uh, a, big, uh, a big Thanksgiving uh, dish. Now, I'm pro-pork. Uh, but I'm team turkey when it comes to Thanksgiving. So uh, if, you eat, if you eat ham at Thanksgiving, you just want to raise your hands. We just want to judge you for just a quick moment. All right, thank you. Uh, how about turkey? Team turkey? All right, hey. How about fried turkey? Any fried turkey people? Uh, come to the dark side, right? We would love to have you. Um, how about anyone eat steak at Thanksgiving? My heroes, right? My heroes right there. The turkey eaters are my people. The steak people are my heroes. Um, well, I have a friend, his name's Justin. Justin lives in Ohio, and uh, for 15 years, he and I, we, we've been going back and forth about ham and turkey at Thanksgiving. So probably starting tomorrow or this week, he'll send me a text uh, that says something, uh, some kind of derogatory statement about my turkey that I'll eat at Thanksgiving, uh, and then he will, uh, I will respond with a wittier comeback uh, about the ham that he is going to eat. And, and we go back and forth, and we've been doing this for 15 years. Um, we don't have a lot of hobbies, right? Uh, uh, we've been going back and forth one another for 15 years on is ham better or is turkey better? And this might surprise you, but we have yet to change each other's mind. We, we have yet to change. I've yet to convince Justin that not only is turkey better on Thanksgiving, but leftover fried turkey sandwiches on the Friday after Thanksgiving are God's gift to his people, right? Um, I've yet to convince him of that. He's still team ham. We haven't changed our minds. We, we haven't changed our opinions. And really, that, that kind of leads to this question that I've been thinking about this week is, is how do people change? How, how do you change your mind? How do you change someone's mind? How do people change? I Googled this week, how do people change? And Google returned 11.5 billion results on how people change. And one of the things that, that I noticed was the, the very first article, you know, it jumps up and it highlights and it says that, that people change with a combination of desire and willpower. That's wrong. Uh, no one has changed themselves from a sinner to a saint through willpower. But we don't, we don't change by, at least we don't change in the important ways by just deciding, well, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. 
No, we, we change when we encounter and we experience the glory and the grace of God. And so as we look here at 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning, we're going to see this truth that experiencing God's glory changes the way we see ourselves and the world. Experiencing God's glory changes everything about us. No one, no one encounters God, no one sees God's glory and leaves unchanged or unmoved. The disciples didn't see Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and think, huh, that's nice. No, they were amazed, right? Moses didn't, didn't see the, God's glory, the hem of his robe pass by and think, wow, that's interesting. No, he had to come down with a veil over his face because he was shining like the sun. When you experience and you encounter God's glory, things change. And here in 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to see that. Peter's going to paint this picture of what does our life look like? What does it mean to have experienced and encountered God's glory? But what's interesting is he doesn't talk about God's glory until the very end. And he shows that all of this, all of our lives are moving to that point, to that purpose, to God's glory. So look with me here at 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 down to 11. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses on the screen. If you need a Bible and you don't have a Bible, if you go by our Next Steps banners on the way out, we would love to put a Bible in your hands that is a gift from us to you. So please, please, if you don't have one, go by there. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's inspired and errant, all-sufficient, perfect word. The Spirit says to us here, starting in verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we confess together this morning that you are glorious. Father, we, we recognize that, that when we behold your glory and when we experience your glory, God, you change us. And so, Father, we pray this morning that, that you would change us. God, we, we pray this morning that we would get a glimpse of your glory in your word. And, Father, we're asking now that you would speak to us. We ask this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Experiencing God's glory changes the way we see ourselves and the world, and 
And here in 1 Peter 4, Peter's going to show us what this looks like. He's going to show us three ways that our lives are changed as we experience God's glory. And the, the first one is this, is that we live righteously. Live righteously. Everything Peter says in this passage, it flows from Christ's sufferings that, that he is unpacked for us there at the end of chapter 3. Pastor Mike did such a great job preaching on that passage last week. And so what Peter's going to do here in chapter 4 is he's really, he's going to apply what does Christ's suffering look like? What does it mean for your life and for my life? This is why I look at verse 1. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He says, arm yourselves. Christ's suffering, it's not just an example, but it's a weapon. Right? You're to arm yourselves. There's, there's some military language here. We're to arm ourselves. And what are we to arm ourselves with? This same way of thinking. This same thinking that Christ had in other places in the New Testament. Where we let the mind of Christ be in you. Right? That we would think the way Christ thought. Well, what is this way of thinking? Well, it's that we would be willing to suffer for the sake of God's glory. That we would be willing to suffer for the sake of God's name. Now, at the end of this verse, there's an interesting statement. Uh, I told some of our staff, we were talking about last week's passage and this week's passage, and I said, I'm convinced that the New Testament writers, they would just sprinkle in little confusing statements for fun, right? Just, just to, to make us really think and make us work hard. Look at, look at the end of verse 1. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Some of you are saying, well, if that's the case, I should be perfect, Right? Uh, because I have suffered. Now, what Peter is saying here, and we, we know this from the rest of the, the New Testament, we know this from the rest of Scripture, he's not saying that, that if you suffer enough, if you fill up your quota of suffering, then you won't sin anymore and God will make you perfect. Right? We read that and, and almost maybe you think, well, that, that's difficult. Pastor Mike made a great point last week. He said that you, you can interpret, you can understand the difficult statements of Scripture by the clear statements of Scripture. And so when we, we read this through the lens of that, through the lens of the Scripture, what we, what we see and when we read it in context is when Peter says that those who have suffered cease from sin, he's not saying that by your suffering, God waves his hand and you are now perfect and you don't sin anymore. Instead, what he's saying is that a willingness to suffer is evidence that sin doesn't have a hold on you. Right? That a life of sin has been has been broken. One author put it this way. He said that when we are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin has been severed in our hearts. That when we're willing to, to suffer, what we're saying is, is that Jesus is better, that God's glory is greater than my comfort. God's glory is greater than whatever I may want or whatever I may think or whatever I may need. And so now I am free to suffer and to pursue holiness rather than to be a slave to sin. When we're, we're willing to suffer like Jesus, we've broken with this life of sin. And so we are not perfect, but make no mistake, we will be different. There will be a marked difference in your life. And we see this difference here in verses 2 and 3. He says, you've ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time, the rest of your lives, in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. 
living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He says here in verse 2, we don't, once we've experienced God's glory, once we've experienced God's grace, we don't live for human passions anymore. No, now our passion is to do the will of God. Right? That, that we must be about our Father's business. Now understand, everything about these verses is supernatural. We don't willingly suffer. We don't desire God's will unless our hearts have been changed by his grace and we've experienced his glory. Now, the end of verse 3, Peter's going to describe the life of Gentiles. Remember in in 1 Peter, when he talks about Gentiles, he's not talking just about those who aren't Jews, but he's talking about those who haven't believed in Jesus, who haven't put their faith in Jesus. And so look there at the end of verse 3. He says, time passes for surprising what the Gentiles want to do. What is it they want to do? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. One of the things I'm struck by is this list is just as true of our world today as it was of Peter's world. There's a remarkable consistency to sin throughout history, isn't there? The same things that, that Peter and his audience that they, they were living amongst and they were dealing with, those are the same things that you and I are dealing with today. We might call it different things. It might look different ways. But at the end of the day, this is, this is what our world is dealing with. Peter almost describes a typical college campus. But what we've learned or what I have learned is that the problem is, is that people don't always grow up after college. And so they still do these things. They just make them look more respectable. They just do them in the privacy of their own home. Or they just do them in ways that we find less offensive. You know, if you're, you're like me, then, then every once in a while, I just get tired of seeing the same things, the same problems, whether it be in the news or wherever else. And I, and I just wonder, like, has the entire world lost their mind? What is the world coming to? But when we read this passage, when we read this verse, what we learn is that the world is not becoming something that it hasn't always been. Right? The, the, the world, the lost world, do you know what it's being? It's being the lost world. We shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers live like unbelievers. We shouldn't be surprised when, when lost people live like lost people. We should be surprised when saved people live like lost people. But we, may, we shouldn't be surprised when, when lost people live like lost people. And the response isn't that we look down. No, the response is the response of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus did? He weeped over Jerusalem. He said they're wandering like sheep without a shepherd. So what do we do in this moment? What do we do when the world is like this? Well, what Peter says is you live righteously. See, there's a lesson for evangelism to be learned here. We change the world not by becoming more like the world, but by becoming more like Jesus. 
Right? So, so we change the world whenever the world sees, when the world recognizes, when the world notices that there is something markedly, understandably, evidently different about us than about them. That we, we live in such a way that we, we make the gospel visible. That, that's what righteous living is about. Righteous living is not about living in such a way so that the people around you say, man, he's really good. Righteous living is not about saying, hey, everyone, look at me. Right? I do this and I do that. I, I go to church and I don't cuss, drink, or chew or go with women who do. Right? That, that is not what righteous living is about. Do you know what that is? That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees lived in such a way to make everyone look at them. What righteous living is about is about living in such a way so that people see how great God's grace is. It's about living in such a way so that people see how glorious God is. That we own, you know what, I'm not perfect, but I've got a perfect Savior. I'm not perfect, but I've got a, I've got a perfect Jesus. That's what we've been called. We've been called to live righteously. So this evangelism lesson here, that, that we win the world, you, you win your lost neighbor, your lost coworker when you look more like Jesus and, and less like the world. And we, we see how this works. The end of this, this list of, of vices, this, this list of sins there in verse 3, notice how it ends. Lawless idolatry. I think what Peter's doing here is he's actually summarizing everything he's just said. That sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties, really what all of that is, that's just lawless idolatry. It's misplaced worship. That these people, not just Peter's audience, but but the people that we live amongst, that that they were worshiping, but they were just worshiping the wrong things. But when we live ready to suffer and ready to live righteously, what we do is we, we show that Jesus is all-satisfying. And we show that we can have hope even whenever it seems like we should not. I, I, I was talking with one of our sweet members this week. And she's, she's just received a, a diagnosis that none of us would want to have. But one of the things that I was struck by was just confident faith, confident hope, that God can heal her or he can take her home to be with him. That's a hope, that's a faith that the world doesn't understand. But that's a hope and that's a faith that is attractive. And I, I want that. I, I want to live like that. That's living righteously. And so first we see that we're to live righteously. Next we see that we're to live differently. We live differently. He moves from how we live to how unbelievers respond to how we live. And his point is, is that whenever we live differently, that people notice. In other words, when we've experienced God's glory, everything changes, including how we live. When you've experienced God's glory, you will be different. Now, at the end of verse 3, he, he runs through the, that list of vices. And then verse 4, he says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. 
He says that the world is surprised that we aren't joining them in their sin. In fact, that phrase, join them, they're surprised when you do not join them. That, that phrase, join them, is literally run with them. It's, it's this idea of an energetic pursuit. They're surprised that you and I aren't pursuing pleasure the way they are. They're surprised that you and I aren't doing this and that you and I aren't doing that. What are they running after? They're, they're running after a flood, literally a, a wide stream of debauchery of sin. And the response is that believers are maligned. See, there's an obvious difference between the lives of disciples of Jesus and the rest of the world. If your life is not different from the world around you, you are not following Jesus. You might be following the world. You might be pretending to follow Jesus. But if your life isn't different, then you are not following him. See, when we've experienced God's glory, every area of our life changes. The way that you work as an employee changes when you've experienced God's glory and his grace. The way that you work as a supervisor or a boss changes when you've experienced God's glory and God's grace. The way that you parent your children changes when you've experienced God's glory and God's grace. The way you, you love your spouse changes. I'm learning the, the way that you conduct yourself at a Little League baseball game changes when you've experienced God's glory and his grace. But the umpire hasn't. You know, I, I spend a lot of time watching sports and thinking about sports. Although I've decided I'm not a college football fan anymore. Um, but, but what I've learned is that it's, it's easy to tell who's rooting for who when you go to the game. They're wearing the shirt. They're doing the cheers. They're celebrating. This is why I don't buy it when men tell me, like, yeah, I just don't get excited. It's like, brother, I've seen you at a football game. Man, uh, you can get excited about that. You better get excited about Jesus. But it's evident who they're cheering for. It's easy to tell what team they're on by the way that they live. It's easy to tell what team they're on by the way that they conduct themselves. In the same way, it's easy to tell who we're living for by the way that we live. Are we living for God's glory or are we running after sin? Are we living for God's glory or are we living for the temporary satisfaction of ourselves? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves because that's the question that God's word is calling us to deal with, that we are called to live differently. Are you, are we, am I living differently? Now, Peter's clear here. He says that we will be maligned for living differently. There in verse five, he says, the end of verse 4, he says, they malign you. Then verse 5, he says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What he's saying is, look, that you will be maligned. You will be ridiculed for seeking to live differently, for seeking to live righteously, but they will not have the last word. God is the final judge. He has the last word. I used to think, man, if I could get out of elementary school, peer pressure will be gone. If I can get out of high school, peer pressure will be gone. If I could just do this, and what I've learned is peer pressure just keeps following you. I, I heard uh, the story recently of uh, a woman who had turned 101. Family member asked her, what's the best part of being 101? She said, no peer pressure. 
right? The, the peer pressure just, it, it, it's always there. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about this peer pressure, right? They, they malign you. They, they think you're ridiculous. What do you mean you don't want to do this? Why would you not want to do that? Well, the reason we don't do this and the reason we don't do that is because God is greater. Right? Jesus is more satisfying than any drunken party you have ever been to. Jesus is more satisfying than all of it. And so it's not because we, we don't refrain from doing these things because we don't like to have fun. We refrain from doing these things because Jesus is serious about our joy. There is no joy in that list of vices. There is joy in Jesus Christ. There is joy in experiencing his glory and his grace. Now in verse 6, we, we have this, this another tricky statement. He says, for, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. I read that and I thought, man, he's pastored a Baptist church before, hadn't he? You'll get that later. It was fine. Uh, he says, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So is Peter saying that like, we should go to the, seminary, the cemetery and, and preach? No, that, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that, that those who are dead now, that they heard the gospel while they were still living, and they heard the gospel, and they believed, and because of their sin, because of sin, they died like all men, but because of the gospel, they live like God. He says they live in the Spirit. Now, if we're not careful, we'll we'll think that, that living in the Spirit is somehow less than living in the flesh, but we could not be more wrong. That living in the Spirit is actually real life. I love the, the story from Billy Graham. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will have just changed my address. He goes on to say that I will be in the presence of God. That is where real life is lived. Real life is lived in God's presence. Real joy and real satisfaction is found in the presence of God. So Peter tells us, he says, live righteously, live differently. And finally, he says this, he says, live purposefully. Live purposefully. He, he ends this passage with a sobering statement. And really this, it fits into the larger context of 1 Peter that no matter what's happening around us, that we live righteously, we live differently, we live purposefully, that our circumstances don't dictate our righteousness. Our circumstances don't dictate how we live. So in verse 7, we, we have this sobering statement. He says, the end of all things is at hand. The, the end of all things is at hand. What he's saying is Christ's return is imminent. His death and resurrection mark the beginning of the end. The, the end of all things is at hand. What he's saying here is that everything necessary for Jesus to return has occurred. His life, death, burial, and resurrection has happened. Jesus could return at any moment. My prayer, my hope, is that Jesus returns before Thanksgiving. Right? My, my hope is that Jesus returns before this service is over because then we get to go be with Jesus if we're united to him by faith. If we've trusted in him, then we should long for his appearing. Now, we might expect him to say that because the end of all things is at hand, what you should do is you should just 
kind of fall back and just hide. You, you should just focus on yourself. You, you should just, because the end of all things is at hand, what you need to do is you need to be like weathermen. Try to predict when Jesus is going to return. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say get a chart or this or that. No, you know what he says? Live sober-minded. He says be self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. See, in the New Testament, when the return of Christ is taught, it isn't so that we'll be like those weathermen trying to predict when he will come. Instead, it's to encourage us to live holy lives and to trust that God is in control. You know, there's always been an interest in eschatology. Eschatology is the, the study or the doctrine of the return of Christ. There's always been an interest. There, there's never been a generation of Christ followers who were not interested. In fact, did you know this? Did you know that from the first century to today, every generation has believed that they were the generation that would see the return of Christ? And, and it's understandable, right? It's understandable for us now. We, we see what's happening in Israel. We, we know what's happening in the rest of the world. We, we see what the world is coming to. It's, it's understandable. You know, in the, the first great awakening, they believed that they were the generation that would see the return of Christ because the world was getting more and more Christian, or so they thought, more, more and more Christianized. And so they believed that they would be the generation. Every generation has believed that they're the ones living in the end times. And here's the thing, it's because we are. We've been living in the end times since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His return is imminent. He is coming at any moment. The end of all things is at hand, but we miss the point when we treat it as something to know rather than just fuel for life. Right? That's the point of knowing that Jesus will return. The point of knowing that Jesus will return is so that we would be found faithful. So that we would be found trusting in who he is and what he has done and what he has called us to. That's the point. The point isn't that so that we would be able to predict. Now, I think that we should, we should constantly be looking to the heavens for the return of Jesus. We should, we should be reading the newspaper through our Bibles. The problem is too often we read our Bibles through the lens of the newspaper. We should be looking for the return. We should be longing for the return of Jesus. But the point of knowing that Jesus will return is that we would be encouraged and we would be motivated to be found faithful. We got our kids a puppy a couple weeks ago. Um, I know. Uh, we just love, we love cleaning up poop and pee from other things. And I've had this puppy for a, a week, week and a half. And um, the problem is I, I love this puppy. Right? I love this dog. I told my wife, I said, I like this dog more than the kids. Um, but uh, it might surprise you that, that he, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't obey perfectly. Uh, last night, um, I, was, I was actually going over my sermon, and I realized I, his name's Hank. I, I hadn't seen Hank. I hadn't heard Hank in a little while, which uh, in our household, if there's no noise happening, that's bad news. So uh, I get up, and I start calling him, and because he's just like a crowder child, he doesn't answer, right? He doesn't, he doesn't come, and I come around in our kitchen, and 
uh, I find Hank, or I can hear him before I get there, and he's growling, and he sounds like he's by, and I'm thinking, like, he's caught a bad guy. Uh, well, he caught the rug, right, uh, in front of our sink, and he, we've been over this for the last week. Hey, if you chew on her rug, she will get you, right? Uh, and uh, so uh, I come around the corner, and I say his name again, and he just froze. And he looked at me. Uh, and then he came over and wanted to be pet. And so I was like, oh, it's fine. You're fine. Uh, and I bet him. See, Hank had forgotten that I was going to come back. And because of that, he wasn't being faithful. When we forget that Jesus will return at any moment, we fail to live faithful. But Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, live faithful. Therefore, be sober-minded. Therefore, be self-controlled. And if you aren't, your prayers will be hindered. And then what he's going to do in verses 8 through 11 is he's going to show us what does this look like? What does it look like? How does knowing that Jesus will return, how does that work out in our lives? And he says, because Jesus is returning, do two things. Love one another and serve one another. Look at verse 8. He says, above all. So knowing that Jesus will return, what should you do? Above all, before you do anything else, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. That is not what I expect to find there. That because Jesus is returning before you do anything else, love one another. If we were going to say it today, we would say because Jesus is returning, love the church. Love your brothers and your sisters in Christ. In verse 9, he, he makes this more clear. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Some of you, Thanksgiving's at your house, you need to memorize that verse, Right? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He says, look, Jesus is returning. And because Jesus is returning, what you need to know before you need to know anything else, you need to love one another. He says, because love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean, love covers a multitude of sins? What it means is this, is that this kind of love, this love motivated by the return of Jesus is not easily offended. Some of us are far too easily offended. But if we are motivated by the return of Jesus, then what that means is we will have thick skin and tender hearts, right? That we will love one another. We will show hospitality to one another. Then in verses 10 and 11, he says, serve one another. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What he's saying is, is that God has given every one of his children, every believer, he's given us different gifts. Some of us have same gifts, similar gifts. Some of us have different gifts. It's God's varied grace. And so he, he uses two illustrations here. He says, first, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. What he's saying is, if you have the gift of teaching, if you have the, the gift of speaking, then, then you are to declare, you are to deliver God's word faithfully. This is why we start off every service by saying, open your Bibles to and not turn with me in the New York Times. 
right? Or, 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 hey, did you hear about what happened on the news? No, it's, we want to hear from God, right? That we deliver God's word faithfully is the goal. But then he gives a second, a second example. He says, whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I'll be the first to tell you that not everyone has the gift of speaking. Maybe you'd say, I, I could never get up in front of a room full of people. But I'm convinced that we all have the gift of serving. If we're going to be like Jesus, well, Jesus said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve. That means that, that as believers, that you and I, that we have a calling, we have a divine responsibility to serve. To serve one another, to serve the church, this happen in formal ways and informal ways. You might say, Ethan, I don't have any way that I could serve the church. I'm not musical. I'm not really tech savvy. I don't like kids. I don't like whatever it may be. But you know what? I think, I think probably all of us could hold the door open and smile. You don't even have to smile, right? You just hold the door open. You know, park cars, whatever it may be. This is why we have the multiply board out there. This is why we, we set aside time uh, this time of year. We set aside a season because we, we want to serve as a church. We want to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. I, I told the 830 service, I said, hey, uh, let's try to empty that board out there so we can make 10 o'clock jealous. Uh, and it almost worked. <laughs> uh, it almost worked. So I'm going to issue the same challenge. Hey, let's empty the board so that we can make 1130 jealous. Say, hey, if you want to serve, you should have been at 10 o'clock, right? You, sh- you should have woken up earlier. But there's a purpose. There's a purpose for this serving. Notice what he says. He says, you serve is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. See, you don't serve in your own strength. You serve in the strength that God supplies. So maybe you're saying, Ethan, I don't know how I would serve the church. Well, according to God's word, you are the best candidate for serving. Because you're not supposed to serve according to your strength. You're to serve according to the strength that God supplies. And then here we see the purpose. In order that. Circle and order that in your Bibles. That's a purpose statement. It's a statement of purpose. It's what grammarians call a henna clause because it's henna is the word there. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So you live purposefully. You live so that in everything... Not in some things, not in some areas, but in everything, in every area, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. It's to him who belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I love the two words. He says glory and dominion, that, that God is glorious, but then he has dominion. He has the right to rule. So what this means is that he is the glorious ruler, the glorious king of heaven, that everything we do We do so that he would be glorified, so that he would be honored, so that he would be praised. We speak not so that people will look at us. We serve not so that people will look at us. We do multiply not so that people look at us. We do it all so that God would be glorified, so that God would be honored, so that God would be praised. That's the natural response. That's the result of experiencing God's glory. When you've experienced God's glory, you begin to see the world differently but then you also begin to see yourself differently. 
And you see yourself differently because, hey, I'm not living for myself. I'm living for Jesus. I'm not living for what I want to do. I'm living for what Jesus wants to do in me, what, what God wants to do through me. I asked at the beginning of this, of our time together, how do people change? The way people change is by experiencing God's glory. You, you might have a sin that the way the author of Hebrews puts it just continues to cling so closely. Maybe there is a sin in your life that you think, if I could beat that, if I could have freedom from that sin, then my walk with Jesus would be good. My walk with Jesus would be fine, but, but I just can't seem to, to lay aside that sin. Well, in this passage, we, we have the secret, we have the key to defeating sin. The key to defeating sin is to continue to gaze at God's glory. To continue to gaze at his mercy. To not think, man, I am such a sinner, but to think, no, he is such a savior. Right? How, how do you live purposefully? You don't live purposefully by just waking up in the morning and deciding, I'm going to live with purpose. No, you live purposefully by waking up in the morning and looking at Jesus and then knowing he demands my life. He demands my all. Right? You, you defeat sin by, by looking at Jesus and knowing that what we just sang is true. That the things of the world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so maybe this morning... Maybe what the Lord is calling you to is he's really just calling you back to himself. You know, I'm, I'm willing to bet that whenever I said, maybe you have that sin that continues to cling so closely, I'm willing to bet that that sin came to mind immediately. That you know what that sin is. And maybe you've been trying to beat it in your own power. Maybe you've been trying to do it in your own strength. And this morning, what God is calling you to do is he's calling you to return your gaze to him that he is the one who is worthy of glory. He is the one who has dominion forever and ever. Amen. And maybe, maybe this morning you're here, and maybe you're here because it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving and you're in town with family, and this is the one Sunday a year that you come to church. Or it's the one Sunday a year that you, you come to Central. And we are, we're glad you're here. I hope you get to eat a lot of turkey this week. But, but maybe you're here this morning and maybe you know, you know inside you, you know where you sit, you know that you are struggling to find joy. You're struggling to find purpose. Maybe that list of sins that I read in verse three, the partying and the drinking and the passion and the sensuality and the orgies and the lawless idolatry, maybe that marks your life. And, and maybe this morning, you'd be honest and you would say, it doesn't satisfy. It might scratch the itch for a moment, but I'm not joyful. I'm not happy. Well, what we see in this passage and in this book is that the, the key to real joy the key to real happiness, it's not trying all these different things. It's looking to Jesus. 
It's looking to God who is glorious and who is wonderful and who is mighty and who offers you forgiveness and life and freedom and joy even now. That in Jesus Christ, you can find joy. And if you've never trusted him, if you've never come to him, well then, today is the day. There's no better day to trust Jesus than today. And so we want to invite you to do just that. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and our, our next steps team will be down front at the end of the service. They'd love to talk with you and pray with you. Maybe, maybe you need someone to pray with you because you've got that sin that clings so closely. Maybe you need to talk to someone and you need to pray because Jesus is working in your heart. He's working in your life and he has saved you. He is saving you even now. Whatever it is, we would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to celebrate with you. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, thank you for the goodness and the glory of Jesus. Father, thank you that you you haven't left us on our own, but that you have come and you have revealed your glory to us. And Father, we, we pray this morning that we would see your glory, we would experience your glory even now, God, that we wouldn't leave without having tasted and see that you are good and that you are still good, and that you will be good. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in here who are struggling with a sin this morning. Who They, they just feel like they can't beat it. They feel like they can't overcome it. God, I, I pray that, that for every one glance they take at their sin, they would take ten looks at Jesus. They would see the power to overcome that sin. It's not, it's not in their strength, but it's in Christ's strength. And that the Holy Spirit, who brought Jesus out of the grave, is alive and at work in us today. That by his power and by his strength, we can have freedom. Father, we pray this morning for the one who sits in here, who's yet to trust you. Or maybe, maybe that one who sits in here, maybe they've been playing the game, they've been looking the part, but they know that their heart hasn't been changed by the gospel. Their heart hasn't been changed by the glory of God. Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart even now. That might be you this morning. Maybe maybe this morning you've come in and Maybe the Lord's just opened your eyes or maybe you've known that you've just been playing a game. That you've been faking an experience of God's grace. You've been faking an experience of God's glory and maybe people are buying it, but know this. God knows. And this morning, he's inviting you to come and find freedom and forgiveness in life. God, we pray that you would do it. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.